from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where sometimes we veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Sue, Doc, Shannon, Rebecca, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dearest two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Godtear, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you guys so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe, it just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on the torture and murder of Junko Furuta. Four boys by the name of Hiroshi, Joe, Nobuaru, and Yasushi were her torturers and killers. Now folks, what happened to this girl was graphic and the person who requested this asked that I not hold back so that the true scale of what these individuals did to her can be known. And so, here is your first of three disclaimers. This comes with the trigger warnings, all of the warnings, okay? I warned you. So, to talk about Junko's murder, we should get a little background information to set the scene. In Japan, there is an organization called the Yakuza, also known as Gokudo. The people within the U.S. organization are members of the transnational organized crime syndicates originating in Japan. The Japanese police and media, by request of the police, call them, quote, violent groups, while the members call themselves, quote, chivalrous organizations. The English equivalent word is really gangster, as in mafia. The Yakuza are well known for their incredibly strict codes of conduct, their organized, territorial nature, and several unconventional ritual practices, such as amputation of the tip of one's pinky finger or amputation of the left little finger. This is done as a form of atonement, a way to be punished or to show sincere apology and remorse to another for offenses, primarily against other Yakuza's. Its origin stems from the traditional way of holding a Japanese sword. The bottom three fingers of each hand are used to grip the sword tightly, 
with the thumb and index fingers slightly loose. The removal of digits starting with the little finger and moving up the hand to the index finger progressively weakens a person's sword grip. The idea is that a person with a weak sword grip then has to rely more on the group for protection, reducing individual action. But this practice isn't used often these days as it's an easy visual marker for the authorities. Members are often portrayed as males wearing sharp suits with heavily tattooed bodies and slicked back hair. This group is still regarded as being among, quote, the most sophisticated and wealthiest criminal organizations, end quote. The name Yakuza originates from the traditional Japanese card game, where the goal is to draw three cards adding up to a score of nine. Regardless, it isn't known specifically what the origins of the gang are. Most modern Yakuza derive from two social classifications, which emerged in the 1600s through the mid-1800s. One, those who primarily peddled illicit, stolen, or rickety goods, and two, those who were involved in or participating in gambling. The peddlers ranked as one of the lowest social groups during this early 300-year era. As they began to form organizations of their own, they took over some administrative duties relating to commerce and the protection of their commercial activities. These peddlers opened booths, so to speak, and some members were hired to act as security. Each peddler paid rent in exchange for a booth assignment and protection during any fairs. The gamblers had a much lower social status than even traders as gambling was illegal. Many small gambling houses would crop up in abandoned temples or shrines at the edges of town and villages all over Japan. And as you can imagine, most of these gambling houses ran loan-sharking businesses for clients, and they usually maintained their own security people. Society at large regarded the gambling houses themselves, as well as the gamblers, with disgust. Why am I getting Squid Game vibes? So it was during this early time when the Yakuza were developing, the groups were composed of mostly misfits and delinquents who had joined or formed the groups to extort customers in local markets by selling fake or poor quality goods. The roots of the Yakuza survive today within initiation ceremonies and rituals. Although the modern Yakuza has diversified, some gangs still identify with one group or the other. For example, a gang whose primary source of income is illegal gambling may refer to themselves as Bakudo or the Gamblers. So prospective members come from all walks of life. There are, of course, romantic tales of how Yakuza accept the sons who have otherwise been abandoned or exiled by their parents. Many Yakuza start out as young as junior high school students or high schoolers as common street thugs, members of a Japanese youth subculture associated with customized motorcycles. The first appearance of these types of biker gangs, in fact, 
Perhaps because of its lower socioeconomic status, numerous Yakuza members come from the Japanese lower class and ethnic Korean backgrounds. And like most organized crime syndicates, there is a boss, his subordinates, and on down the line. Members of Yakuza gangs cut their family ties and give over their loyalty to the gang boss. They refer to each other as family members, fathers and elder and younger brothers. The Yakuza is populated almost entirely by men, and the very few women who are even acknowledged are the wives of bosses, usually referred to as an older sister. The structure of it all is complex, but you get the general idea. And for my tattooed children out there, many members have full body tattoos, including their genitalia. These tattoos are still often hand-poked. That is, the ink is inserted beneath the skin using non-electrical, handmade, and handheld tools with needles of sharpened bamboo or steel. The procedure is expensive, it is painful, and it can take years to complete. And while in decline, there are still approximately 12,300 or so active Yakuza members in Japan as of 2021, although it is possible that there are a lot more active than statistics say. The Yakuza does not consist of just one group. Rather, there are many different syndicate groups that together form one of the largest organized crime groups in the world. And for my U.S. children, the Yakuza presence has increased tremendously since the 1960s, and even though much of their activity in the United States is in Hawaii, they have made their presence known in other parts of the country, especially in Los Angeles and the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as Seattle, Las Vegas, Arizona, Virginia, Chicago, and New York City. The Yakuza are said to use Hawaii as a midway station between Japan and mainland America, smuggling methamphetamine into the country and smuggling firearms and sex trafficking back to Japan. So now that we know a very basic overview of the Yakuza, let me tell you a bit of background information on Ms. Junko. She was born on January 18, 1971, in Misato, in central Japan. She had her parents, of course, an older brother and a younger brother. There really isn't any information on her childhood, but again, that could simply mean there isn't anything out of the ordinary to note. She most likely came from middle class or so means, loved by her parents, and got along with her brothers as much as most siblings do. As a teenager, she attended Yashio Minami High School, where she earned good grades and was said to be popular. Junko was considered a beautiful young lady, and I believe that she was. She did not smoke, didn't drink alcohol, didn't do drugs, which was seen as kind of uncool in the eyes of some of the more gangster-like teens that were her peers. Junko absolutely loved to sing. She loved it so much that she dreamed of someday being a contestant on Idol. 
Now, she had just begun working part-time at a plastic molding factory during after-school hours. She was doing this to save up money for a trip she had planned for after graduation. Now, some sources have her being 16 years old. Some state she was 17. Regardless, one night after Junko had finished an evening shift at her job, she hopped onto her bicycle and began riding home. She would never see her family again. An 18-year-old young man by the name of Hiroshi Miyano also went to school with Junko, and it was said that he had a crush on her. Now, a bit about him. Hiroshi had a history of problematic behavior since elementary school, such as shoplifting and even damaging school property. He had enrolled in a private high school in Tokyo, but he dropped out the following year. After this, he continued to commit several crimes that began to escalate over time. As these issues got worse and worse, from what I understand, either his parents kicked him out or he left, but he had ultimately gone to live with his girlfriend and her younger brother, Yasushi, was friends with Hiroshi. Hiroshi was no longer in school and was actually working as a tile worker, saving his money so that he and his girlfriend could eventually get married. But his job paid a lower wage, and he was becoming pretty frustrated that he wasn't making a lot of money, you know, as one does. This frustration eventually led to Hiroshi becoming involved with a gangster, a Yakuza, and began committing sex crimes. What those sex crimes were specifically, I couldn't find, but working with gangsters, well, one could imagine. I do know that he played a part of a sex ring who would take young girls and force them into group sex or gangbangs, so there's that. This disgusting behavior eventually caught up to his girlfriend who broke things off with him. Seeing Junko... He decided to begin flirting with her, and she was a sweet girl and didn't immediately turn him down, as so many of us do, because we don't want to hurt feelings. But when Hiroshi officially asked her out, she politely declined him. And this made him angry. He thought himself a Yakuza, a member of the gangsters he looked up to who had money, women, status, everything he wanted. How dare she? He would not let her insolence go. So he and his friends, 17-year-old Yasushi, his ex's little brother, 16-year-old Shinji, who had an original name, but this is the new name, 17-year-old Joe, were using the second floor of Shinji's house as a hangout. Together, the group of young men had recently been committing a string of crimes, including purse snatching, extortion, and rape. So on the evening of November 25th, 1988, just as Junko was getting on her bike to begin the journey home, Hiroshi and Shinji were out and about, wandering the city, fully intending to mug rob and rape a random woman they knew would eventually cross paths with them. At about 8.30 p.m., 
they caught sight of Feruda riding her bike home after she had finished a shift at her job. Under Hiroshi's orders, Shinji ran up and kicked Feruda off her bike, then immediately fled the scene. Hiroshi then approached, telling Junko that he had witnessed the attack by coincidence and offered to walk her home safely. And though she knew who he was, knew he was a bit of a bully and all of that, he was a familiar face and she accepted his offer. So children, here's where I warn you again, there's almost no time to turn back. Junko was, however, unaware that Hiroshi was actually leading her to a nearby warehouse where he revealed to her his Yakuza affiliations. He then threatened to kill her as he violently raped her in the warehouse and once again in a nearby hotel he forced her to after. Then around 3 a.m., after calling his buddies from the hotel to meet him, Hiroshi took Junko to a nearby park where Shinji, Joe, and Yasushi were waiting. They told her that they knew where she lived as a notebook in her backpack revealed and that Yakuza would kill her entire family if she tried to escape. She was, of course, easily overpowered by the four boys, and they then took her to Shinji's parents' house that they owned, though I got the impression they were either gone a lot working or something else. And then that is where Junko was then gang-raped. Joe asked Hiroshi if they could keep Junko as a sort of prisoner so that they could continue to assault her and also allow others from their gang to come and assault her as well. I mean, they had done this before, only that girl, once the young men had used her up, did let her go. Hiroshi thought this a brilliant plan and thus began Junko's subsequent unspeakable torture. The next morning, Junko's family discovered that she hadn't made it home. Her bike wasn't in its normal place, her bag missing, her bed undisturbed. They called the police to report her missing, and as this news began to spread, the four young men then forced her to call her parents and tell them that she had run away, but was safe and staying with some friends. They also forced Junko to somehow stop the police investigation, though I couldn't figure out how, unless she was considered a legal adult at this point by Japanese law, but don't hold me to that. So two days after her kidnapping, Hiroshi invited two other boys to Shinji's house. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room where Junko was sitting. It was said she was wearing a long-sleeved t-shirt and a skirt that Hiroshi had stolen from a clothing store a few days prior. The other two young men drank cough syrup, pretending it was drugs, and proceeded to pretend to be high. Junko then attempted to run away, absolutely screaming in fear. Hiroshi grabbed her legs, and one of the two boys put a pillow over her face. Now, while this struggle was going on, Shinji's parents were there and came to see what the screaming was. They had been led to believe Junko was Shinji's girlfriend, and he reassured them that all was well. 
So they then left the boys and Junko by themselves. Now, as her punishment, the group of young men then proceeded to gang rape young Junko. During this time, it was later testified that she went into a sort of state of unconsciousness, staring at the ceiling without blinking. One would also call this dissociating. So dissociation is the feeling of detachment from your environment, the people around you, and your own body. Symptoms of dissociation are memory loss of certain time periods, events, people, and personal information. Again, it is a sense of being detached from yourself and your emotions. Your perception of the people and things around you might feel distorted and unreal, and there could be a blurred sense of identity. Dissociation is one way the mind copes with too much stress, such as during a traumatic event. Experiences of dissociation can last for a relatively short time, hours or even days, or for much longer, as in weeks or months. And this group held young, innocent Junko hostage as their toy to play with, use up, and destroy. 44 days she was held prisoner and subjected to all manner of horrific things. Disclaimer, last warning. So not only was she repeatedly beaten and raped, but there were other later statements stating they invited many other Yakuza teen boys and men over to rape her. Sometimes, she was raped up to 12 times a day by various teens and men for nearly the entire length of her imprisonment. The original four friends shaved her pubic hair, forced her to dance to music while naked, and also forced her to masturbate in front of them. They delighted in inserting objects into her vagina and anus, including a lit match, a metal rod, a bottle, a lit light bulb that shattered while still inside of her, and even fireworks in every possible orifice. They burned her vagina and clitoris with lit cigarettes and lighters and poured hot melted wax over her eyelids. Junko was forced to eat live cockroaches and drink her own urine, and most nights, when they were done with her, they forced her to sleep outside on a high balcony with little clothing, and it was December, mind you. They also force-fed her large amounts of alcohol, milk, and water. She was forced to smoke several cigarettes at a time, and they also made her huff paint thinner. Hiroshi himself poured lighter fluid on her legs and then lit them on fire. So due to her very extreme injuries, she was unable to go downstairs to use the restroom and really she was so weak and in such pain. She just sat on the floor and, well, did her business where she sat, not that they gave her much time to rest. And she was, of course, punished for soiling the carpet. As the days went on and the violence against her continued, 
they hung her from the ceiling and used her as a punching bag. They held her down face up, dropped heavy barbells down on her stomach. And you might be wondering, what about Shinji's parents? Well, they began to realize, at least to some degree, what was happening to poor Junka, but they were terrified of their son and his increasing violence towards them, as well as the people he brought over, so they turned a blind eye. And I will let you process that as you will. The boys then used pliers and ripped off her left nipple completely and pierced her breasts with sewing needles, leaving them inside. They shoved scissors into her anus and vagina, broken bottles, chicken skewers, and her upper half was not immune to this abuse. They did these same things in her mouth. She had nearly lost all hearing after the horrible things they had inserted into her ears. So sometime in December, she had been left alone long enough that she found a phone and attempted to call the police, only Hiroshi discovered her and hung up the phone. After her unimaginable punishment, her face was so swollen that it was said it was difficult to make out her features. Her body had become so severely just damaged and she began to emit a foul, rotting smell that caused the boys to finally lose sexual interest in her. They reported her beginning to go into convulsions, though they laughed, taunting her that she was just faking it, and then they set her on fire again. She finally began begging her captors to just kill her and get it over with. They refused. When they didn't lock her out on the freezing balcony, they would lock her in a literal freezer. Junko got to the point that she became unable to consume what tiny bit of food or water they offered her. She would just vomit it back up, and then, of course, came the punishment for that as well. She would soon begin to suffer severe dehydration and malnutrition. They had stomped on her abdomen and beat her hands until the bones in her hands were nearly crushed. If Junko closed her eyes and they caught her, they would burn her eyelids with lighters. So on January 4th, 1989, the four friends challenged Junko to a game. Somehow, and quite unbelievably, she actually won, and this pissed the boys off beyond reason. They kicked and punched her, poured lighter fluid in her eyes, and lit it with a candle flame, struck her feet with some kind of rod, and it was at this point she became unconscious. She was bleeding profusely, and it would later be testified that pus was oozing from her infected burns. They then attempted to set her on fire again, and Junko awoke and tried desperately to put out the flames, but again fell into unconsciousness. This back and forth lasted two full hours. 
Her breathing became nothing more than a suffered wheezing from the blood that was accumulating in her lungs. And then thankfully, mercifully, she went into shock and passed away. So the next day, Shinji contacted Hiroshi and the two others to tell them that Junko had died. They all came to the house in a panic, but quickly came up with a plan. They acquired a 55-gallon oil drum, placed her body inside, and filled it with concrete. The only part of her visible in the drum was a small tuft of her hair sticking out of the top of the concrete. They then dumped the drum with Junko inside at a construction site in Tokyo. The boys thought, well, you know, that was that. Two weeks later, Hiroshi was being questioned by the police regarding a recent gang rape of a 19-year-old girl they had only recently assaulted. And it was said that he became confused and thought the officers were questioning him about Junko. He figured one of his friends had confessed to the brutal torture and eventual death of the young girl, so he began to tell the officers the whole story, including where they could find her body. So all of the boys were arrested, save one that had already been arrested on a separate charge. They located the drum and freed Junko's body from her concrete tomb. They notified her parents and gave them all of the sordid details about what had happened to her. And her mother, hearing all of this, understandably fainted. And so the autopsy revealed that she still had the equivalent of two small Coke bottles. And yes, you heard correctly, two in her anus, which had been so badly abused that the wall between her anus and her vagina had been ripped and... Effectively, the two had become one. And to add insult to injury, they discovered she was pregnant, though her uterus was horrifically damaged. Sources said her face was so mutilated that she had to be identified using fingerprints. They even said that the total weight of her brain had gone down significantly. The four boys were still minors, and though there was an attempt made at keeping their identities secret, it didn't take long for the public to find out exactly who they were. They were originally to be tried as minors, but after the complete outrage, it was upgraded to being tried as adults. And still, none of them were charged with murder, but rather, quote, causing bodily injury resulting in death, end quote. Hiroshi got the worst of it, 20 years. The rest got 10 or much less. And that's it. So where are those boys now? Well, all were released after their sentences. Hiroshi tried to hide his identity as much as he could, and he is known to disappear when people figure out who he is, but when he does talk about the murder, it is said that he displays a playful and exultant attitude. He is known for his high-end lifestyle, hanging out in strip clubs, speeding around in a BMW, allegedly, of course, and bragging about his ties with organized crime. 
In 2013, he was arrested for suspected fraud, but he was released. Shinji moved back in with his mother, and in 2006, he got married, had a daughter, but is now divorced, and all I found was that he was unable to stay out of trouble, including being arrested for attempted murder due to beating a man and slashing his throat. Joe went on to continue bragging about what they had done to Junko. He stole money from his father to live the extravagant lifestyle, much like Hiroshi. Yasushi seems to be the only one who has not reoffended, and in fact, no one really knows what's happened to him. Whew. So, how does one process this? What this poor girl endured? During my research, I actually found someone who put into words what I think we all would like to believe. The original poster, whose name I've kept private, said, quote, That girl was put through hell and back. There was not a part of her body that was not violated or beaten. And yet, her determination to live was honestly astounding, they locked her out on the balcony during winter several times, and yet she did not jump. She would challenge them and tell them to kill her and to get it over with already. Even when they eventually killed her, it was over a game of mahjong and she won, which sounds like a weird thing to mention. But if you think about it, she could have thrown the match to appease her captors, but Junko was still willing to defy them with any agency she had. They may have abused Junko's body, but her spirit and mind remained unbroken and determined. She died with her pride and her strength of spirit intact, which honestly speaks volumes of the character of a girl who was only 16 at the time. End quote. And I really don't think I could have said that any better myself. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. And as always, thank you so much, guys, for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.